Like, so I think what's really interesting, like the beginning of my story is that it's like most of the people you've spoken to, and I've really, really enjoyed the podcast. Like, I really enjoyed Preston's one and and obviously hearing Tom at the beginning. And, it's like, and, and like with Tom, you're being like, they, with the Paddingtons, they just were a group of mates who were in a band. And that was basically their dream was to be in a band. And, you know, like their, the dream started in a, in a rehearsal studio. And for me, the dream didn't start anywhere near there. Like the dream started for me on the internet being on forums and there were two forums there was like there was libertines.org and there was the others forum and I had a friend called Jess who um took me to go and see this band the others I'd never heard of them before I didn't really read the enemy as a kid so um she took me to see them and they like we saw them in Brighton and we hung out with Dom afterwards and it was like oh, fucking hell do you know what I mean like we just hung out with the lead singer like you know and he was gives everyone his number and you know he does a Dominic's podcast was hilarious um uh, and you know, really made me laugh especially still at the end Ian Brown story but um it, you know it's like the that was great and then obviously there was there was the libertines.org <clears throat> And then um, if you were really, <clears throat> there was, what was quite funny was you had, uh, you had Libs.org and you had the others. And then if you were really into music, you'd go on Drowned in Sound or Block Party. The Block Party forum had quite a lot of A&Rs. I think one of the A&Rs for XL used to post on the Block Party forum. It was like quite an interesting bunch of people. And they were kind of a little bit, kind of the noses up about Libertines and they kind of thought the Libertines were kind of, you know, a bit shit. And, you know, they were a bit more angler in their musical tastes. Uh, but the way that I kind of got into all this fucking madness was there was a band called the Redcoats who I'm happy to go on record with saying were were, uh, were kind of like a, a kind of really weak version of the Libertines. Uh, but it was the first one I ever hung out with a charismatic lead singer of a band. And James, who was in the band, was very much that. And, you know, and, it, and basically it was a very, very small group of people on their, on their forum. And um, me being really internet savvy and being really into, you know, um, I used to design websites as a kid for fun and I used to run, run a fancy wrestling website. So, you know, I knew my way around the internet and, um, yeah, it was just like kind of my first taste of like kind of being accepted into, into a peer group really in terms of, um, I just started this college and we were all a kind of a bunch, I'd just been thrown out of college in the first year where I was kind of listening to NERD and listening to R Kelly fucking sorry. And, you know, basically I didn't really have a very good music taste and, then I started this new college and everybody was into really avant-garde shit. I had a mate called Barney, whose dad ran a record shop in Worthing and he got me into the fall and to like, you know, some, I, I had these, these two stoners that were like a couple of years older than us and they had their own flat. We were allowed to go there and smoke special with them and, and basically listen to the Velvet Underground and Bill Hicks on, on CD on tape and they didn't have a telly and it was like blew my mind that they didn't have a telly. And I wanted to be a scriptwriter. I wanted to basically write sitcoms and be a funny man and and do all that stuff and uh this guy basically josh who managed the redcoats he met a guy called andrew avelin um who was the lead singer of litland so andrew basically um andrew had done basically done a gig with james and obviously we'd heard these rumors that he knew p and obviously there was you know that again you know i'm 17 at this point so like any kind of connection to like you know one of your favorite rock stars was just you know it was like blew my mind and it just it things just kept unraveling like a, a kind of like an onion really where like kind of each outer layer i just kind of get closer and closer to kind of all the things that i'd basically spent an entire summer 
reading about on libertines.org, you know, about these guerrilla gigs, about these flat gigs, you know, about all the craziness that kind of happened between the libertines first and second album. And um, obviously the second album came out and that was in the summer of 2005. Did that come out? Yeah, sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, and that was, you know, and, and that was, and then that summer I started to come up to London. So um, I had, I basically, I went to the Love, Hate, Music, Racism gig at Trafalgar Square. It must have been May, June 2005. I went with my mate Nick, and Nick, like, he didn't understand why I was into this music. Like, but Roll Deep were performing, so he was like, right, yeah, brilliant, I'll go see them. And Nick was like, he was this, like, amazing, like, was, his heritage is Jamaican-Irish. He had this big afro and then this, like, big Irish nose, and he was just like, every girl that spoke to him, he just was, like, putting his hand. So he was just up there, just basically just... I think we had like 10 quid between us, right? We stayed in London for two days. And basically this girl, Maeve, she basically threw a banana at me or something uh, and came up to me. I was wearing a Beatles T-shirt and she was like, oh, what's your favourite Beatles song? And oh, maybe, what's that Alan Partridge quote? What's your favourite Beatles album? Like, <laughs> yeah, best it's got to be the best of the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, and so that night, I mean, she was 15, right? I think at the time. And I must have been, maybe I was 17. And I remember... She she basically I, I mean, the thing about London girls as well is like what's interesting is like they definitely grow up quicker but like you're you're streetwise like from you know from such a young age you know like the indie scene and not me trying to kind of create some kind of like controversy but there was a lot of young young people in that scene you know people who were 13 and 14 who were even lying about their age I remember Maeve like lied, lied to me and said that she was I think she even said she was 18 I think she said she was older than me you know like these people they. They, um, you know, like they, they want these kids, they wanted to be part of the scene. And they, you know, like the whole, I mean, what Dominic was saying was like the whole point is that you had these open places where young people were kind of safe in the sense that they could go to gigs and then they could, you know, make sure everyone made sure they got home or they had places to crash. Or there was obviously like a lot of streetwise kids in London who were kind of disenfranchised and kind of wanted to, to, they, you know, there was a particular, particularly girl called Charlotte whose house in Islington that we, um, that we recorded this Channel 4. I mean, I don't know, I'll put it on my Instagram when this goes live so people can see it again. Basically, Channel 4 paid uh, me, I think me and a girl called Shola, who's now a producer of Lauren Laverne's show on Six Music, we did, uh, we basically got paid 50 quid to talk about indie. And uh, it's like the most cringeworthy thing that you can ever see. It's unreal. I've been, because uh, I've been going coming up, Obviously, so basically that, that night that we, we were, I met Maeve and, and her mates, she took us to the Great Eastern Hotel, which is now in Liverpool Street, it's renamed or whatever. It was like this amazingly, like for me, the poshest hotel I've ever been in, right? And they had the Kazals performing, the Paddingtons performing. It was the first time I saw Paddingtons live. It was for PlayStation, for the new portable PlayStation that they just released, like the kind of handheld game they had. And it was all free. It was free booze. And it was just like, fuck me. What, like, do you know what I mean? It was like literally this taste. It was like, wow, I want this. Like, I want to hang out with all this. And then we all went back to Maze, and it was like, you know, six of us all in Maze's room and Maze's mum making us toast in the morning. And it was like, so I kind of turned my back on my college mates. It kind of got me into this kind of music. And I just became like a London scene, basically, and started coming up. And, and you know, what would happen is you'd, you'd basically, you'd, you'd come up on, say like Thursday and you'd stay till Monday 
And all you would do is you'd literally just blag your way into, I mean, I used to do the big thing like, oh, I'm from Brighton, you know, and it's cost me 20 pounds to get up. Please can I have on, on the cheap list? You know what I mean? Like just trying to big steal and borrow your way through into any gig. And then you would, you would basically like you, I mean, I, you, I mean, I was 17. I didn't have a job, you know, and like my mum might have given me, you know, 10 or 20 quid to go up. But that was all you had. You know, it wasn't like you even had like, you know, online banking where you can, you know, these days you might be able to say, oh, you're you just a tenant. Do you know what I mean? It was like literally you, you had that money and you had to make it last. And I don't know how the fuck we did it, but we did it, you know, and you'd go out Thursday at the time of your life, you'd wake up, bounce back up on Friday, bum around, sit in parks, you know, basically just, you know, it wasn't even like, we were, you know, we were doing anything in the daytime. Then, the, then as soon as you got to the evenings, you know, it was basically sat in parks drinking, until you got to the gig, you saw the gig, and you worked out where the after party was, and then the after party, and and you just kind of, yeah, you just kind of, before you know it, you're doing that every weekend, and then eventually, I um, I just kind of packed a bag, and it was like kind of, is it Dick Whittington? No, Dick, who's the one that's got the fucking... Um, yeah, with, with the cat, yeah. Yeah, no, do you know what? No, no. <laughs> I'm going to slow down, because basically... You know the um, the red handkerchief on the stick. Who's that? What's that? You got a kid? You know, you know that little story. I mean, right. Whittington made sense to me. I don't know. We'll edit this bit out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the big influences to begin with going to London was Les Incompetence. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Like, yeah. I mean, like Fred McPherson was always for me. Like, was one of the first people I kind of watched on stage and went, "I would love to do what he's doing." Uh, it was the element of the way they blended comedy and and he could sing. And and I thought the stories that he told were really, really vivid and imaginative and, and you know, like, and they were really catchy tunes, you know, like they were that lovely jingly jangly indie pop that we, you know, like we, we all grew to love. And the gigs were raucous, you know, they would just play these small venues, you know, like I remember seeing them at the Purple Turtle in Camden and I remember going home and raiding my mum's wardrobe to try and steal a trench coat that she had that was similar to Fred's and I went and bought a pair of winkle pickers from office and yeah, I, I just thought Lesing, Lesing were like the band that I remember watching first and going, oh, wow, and then I remember seeing Selfish Cunt in Brighton and that was like, okay, and I want to be like him too. But I couldn't really be like him because I was too nice. <laughs> Do you know I mean? I was 17 and it was like, I was wide-eyed and I didn't really have any aggression. I didn't have anything to fight out about because at the time things were just exciting and fun. And I think Lesing encapsulated that for me quite a lot in the early days. And obviously Fred's gone off to have big success respect her. And um, yeah, that was, that was basically the first chapter of how things kicked off. What was your introduction to the to the little ones and and to like working with baby shambles and stuff? So with um with this kind of that, that connection of the red coats, the band I mentioned very early on. Yeah. Josh who was managing the red coats, um, they kind of fizzled out and Josh was asked by Andrew if he would manage him. And he said he's gonna get a band together, you know, call them Little Ones. Andrew had been in a band called Adam to X. It's a very kind of weird story, but when I was at college, we were I, I did like a media course and we were making a film and I made this like avant-garde weird film. And um, you were basically meant to say you had you meant to only allowed to use music that had been cleared, right? You weren't allowed to use any copyright stuff. And I basically told them a bit of a fib and said that I had 
got permission for Adam to X. I had no idea who they were, but they just seemed obscure enough that they wouldn't question it. And it turns out that was Andrew's band, which was just <laughs> some weird kind of serendipity. But I met Andrew with Josh and he played a kind of solo gig and, and he just had no, I mean, Andrew won't mind me saying this, but he just had no stage presence. He was very kind of, oh, it was almost kind of part, of part of the performance was the fact that he looked so uncomfortable on stage. And he just really, he was, I mean, I still think he's such a beautiful songwriter and and his melodies and he, he, he spent a lot of time with Jarvis Cocker. He used to live with Jarvis and, you know, he's a bit like Forrest Gump in the way that I am, in the sense that we just seem to be in the right places at the right times for certain events in our lives. And obviously, you know, he lived through the that kind of electro clash or whatever you'd kind of call and then to its gold frap kind of era. And then you've got, um, you know, the Pete Doherty era and then obviously Jarvis Cocker. It's like, you know, he's lived, he, he used to live with Pete. It's like, you know, some amazing people that he's lived with in terms of musicians. But just really, really hated being on stage. And he wanted someone basically to take the shine off him, I think. And he met me. And he saw that I had a bit of a kind of Pied Piper quality in in those early days where I just, I suppose, from a kind of natural confidence and just to kind of, just everything being new, every single experience, you know, every single thing that happened that summer was new to me. And I got down to Duke of Clarence, which was this incredible, um, derelict kind of illegal pub run by a really good friend of mine now called Ty Ogidan who is like the craziest fucking African you'll ever meet in your life, right? Um, had diplomatic, diplomatic community, so he could do whatever the fuck he wanted without really having any kind of one to answer to. And he basically bought this pub off a bunch of gangsters called the Adams Family, and they were not creepy and they were not kooky. They were, they were hard nuts, mate, and they once, I mean, again, there's some horrible kind of stories that maybe Ty doesn't want me to share, but... It was a nasty place. And now, at 33, there's no fucking way I would have gone into that pub. But at 17, you just go, you know, because everyone else is going in there. And obviously, the reason that we all went there is because it was they served us because we were underage. And Andrew was there, and he was like, well, look, I'm supporting Pete and Kate Moss tonight. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And he said, well, why don't you get up? Because by this point, I'd listened to all the songs religiously. I knew all the lyrics. He said, why don't you get up on stage? Why, you know, why don't you get up on stage and sing the songs with me tonight? And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, come on, get up, come up and get on stage. And literally the microphone was two microphones, gaffer taped together, right? The pub was rammed, right? Because obviously everyone's there for Pete. And obviously I think Bobby Gillespie was there. Like, you know, some cra- it was a cra- you know, crazy crowds. Obviously Kate was there and Austin and all this stuff. And, and I got on stage and, you know, just kind of sung out a tune, basically, you know, with Andrew. And it was a complete ramshackle. It was, you know, probably worse than any GCSE drama exam you probably could ever YouTube. And uh, the rest of the band seemed a bit peeved that I was suddenly, you know, like just stepped on stage and kind of everything they'd rehearsed was totally thrown out the window. But there was something about Andrew that he seemed to like about me. And I obviously thought he was brilliant. So I was basically down <laughs> downstairs afterwards. And I remember looking up, being in the basement, and it was just police officers walking down the stairs towards me. And I was thinking, okay. And they're like, right, this place has been raided. Get out, get out, get out. And I'm like, what? Right? And the pub had been raided by the police, right? Because obviously they'd heard about the illegal, you know, the, the, obviously the fact it was a legal pub, unlicensed. And obviously it was a huge, big thing about online, about Pete playing. So Pete never even played in the end. So I don't think, I, don't think, I didn't see Kate Moss. And I remember we all spilled out onto the street and Pete and Andrew started playing Their Way, which was basically the song that Andrew 
and Pete Wright together. And it was kind of given to Andrew because he nicked the members of Andrew's other band, The White Sport. He nicked Pat, obviously, who was on your show, and Adam. Um, he nicked them from The White Sport. So, um, and there's all many rumours about, was it was it given as a present or was it brought up? I don't actually really know the truth about that, but that song had been recorded and that was ready to be released uh, in a few months. And they sung it for the first time together on the street. And there's a video that my friend Guy directed of basically me singing it along with Pete, because obviously I'm one of the only people that had heard it um, before. And that by inadvertently basically kind of allowed me to be in our first music video. <laughs> uh, and a few days later, I got a phone call from Andrew and he said, look, do you want to come out to Sheffield with us? We're going to support Baby Shambles out on the tour. And again, it was like, yeah, I'd love to. Do you know what I mean? But I, I didn't think I was going to be on stage. I just thought, I'm, you know, I'm coming to hang out. You know, like I'm just, you know, I'm just one of the gang. Uh, and I basically, I, yeah, I got to Andrew's flat and, you know, we jumped in the splitter van. I'd never been in a splitter van before. I'd never been in a fucking van that had a PlayStation before. <laughs> and hung out with Andrew and basically, yeah, just, you know, we went up to Sheffield and... There's a little bit of controversy, basically. We, Andrew, like, Andrew's a good friend of his, James Malord, is Pete's old manager. And he was obviously involved in a lot in the, you know, he was basically, he was accused of st- um, selling the, the story of Kate Moss to the news of the world and all this kind of stuff. And um, so obviously Andrew and James, his friendship, and obviously Pete was very frosty the first time that I met him in, in Sheffield, very, very frosty. And... Um, was not happy with Andrew and it was it, Andrew Andrew and I just basically spent most of the time in Sheffield trying to be as far away from him and the band as possible really and he wasn't having a good time and you know I was just again just witnessing it you know through these like roasting the glasses just going wow you know pinching myself every single time you know that Adam said hi or you know I saw Pat or spoke to Mick who was the tour you know the, the tour OD and all this kind of stuff and then basically there was a, there was a tambourine backstage and I was just playing it, just rapping it, right? I've got no musical background at all, right? My dad tried to teach me guitar his whole life, and I was never interested. Like, I can touch type 180 words a minute, but I cannot play a single note on a guitar. Like, computers was my thing. The internet was my thing. And um, Andrew said, why don't you come on stage tonight and play the tambourine with me? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah. And you could see the rest of the band were not happy. They did, you know, it was, again, they were like... What you what 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 do you mean? No, 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 this is this is a gimmick, this isn't this isn't cool. Like, do you mean like this is this is Bez, right? <laughs> but something that Andrews had saw in himself that just thought, okay, I need someone to take the like the kind of take the pressure off me, or you know, kind of or I suppose I was I was like a master of ceremonies, really, in the sense that I kind of I came on stage and Ben our drummer introduced us, which I didn't hear. I didn't hear him introduce me as Ronnie. But I got on stage and I just started dancing like a little fucking like a drunken fairy. Like, you know, just I was just so whimsical and just, you know, just what was amazing is I was we were playing to 5,000 people, but it didn't seem to face me. I was just happy to be up there. It was like time stood still. I think it's what they say, like when you're in a fast car, it's like time doesn't speed up. Like time slows down and you get to see like the full kind of... Uh, panoramic view and you know just looking out and just playing his tambourine to the music you know and and I remember the bass player Pato screaming at me after the gig being like 
I could not hear a fucking word. I couldn't hear a single word because of your fucking tambourine. You know, because my fucking tambourine's in her fucking ear the whole time. <laughs> right, and I'm thinking it's like looking really cool and she can't hear the fucking music. So she's playing out of time. Right, and um, we, uh, all of a sudden during the gig, I've got this chant, Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie. And I was like, this is trigger happy TV. Like, do you know what I mean? This isn't some kind of weird prank. This isn't, this isn't happy. This isn't real. Right, and it's like, and people were chanting my name. And I was, and obviously it's because Ben had introduced me. And I got off stage and it was like, wow, wow. Do you know what I mean? Like it was, it was just like, it was fucking mad. And Josh, the manager, he took me to one side and said, that was good, but you're not doing that again. And I was like, that's cool, man. Do you know what I mean? That was my five minutes of fame and that was brilliant. You know, like, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that for me the rest of my life. And then... Andrew jumped on and said, what are you on about? Was, no, fuck off, Josh. No, no, no. Ronnie, do you want to be in the band? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> I mean, what else am I fucking going to do? And uh, I was on, you know, I was meant to be going to university that year, that, that summer in Westminster. And one of my best mates died and I kind of was a bit, distracted from uni and I just thought fuck it I'm not going to uni I'm gonna fucking go on tour baby shambles and the next thing I know it you know we're playing to fucking four or five thousand people every night for for two weeks and <laughs> I really wish I'd gone to university <laughs> <laughs> what year was that where, where was that gig in Sheffield that, was, thought... uh, that would have been September 2005 I think right it was at Sheffield University uh, okay because I went to a gig at Sheffield plug baby shambles around that time but yeah, so we had it. We did have a gig actually at Plug. I mean, I mean, the funny thing is, so after the Baby Shambles tour, I mean, you probably need to talk about getting arrested, don't I? <laughs> because that was like, I mean, obviously, you know, the tour, you know, it was it was crazy, you know, like playing football in Preston, and suddenly Pete's like, you know, joining in with us, and we're playing footy with Pete, and it was like, you know, all these kind of moments that you know you. you at 18 now, it's like, you know, you're just thinking, fucking hell, man, I can't wait to, you know, I can't wait for Christmas Eve and go back home and tell everyone what I've been doing. <laughs> and, um, and you kind of, you know, and, and just, just these mad moments, but we were, we were basically, we've been in Manchester and we played Manchester Academy and that was one of the biggest gigs on the tour. And, you know, Manchester and, and Pete have got an amazing, you know, symbiotic relationship, you know, really, you know, like, Really, you know, really, really love each other, and the fans in Manchester are just amazing. I mean, I love Manchester City, and they play Manchester Academy. We at that gig? Did you go to that one? No, I mean, I'll have, I'll have been in Hull in college at that point. Yeah, right. And so I, so anyway, so uh, Geo Goy, who is like this kind of fashion label, like Anthony's fucking, he's a legend man, and his brother and Chris, like you know, great guys and still friends of mine to this day. And you know, they, I mean, they've. There, <laughs> they 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 have no shame in the fact that you know they are naughty boys and they you know they've done a few illegal things in their time, and again just wide eyed had no idea who they were you know and they just had this party bus they basically just rented this double decker bus and it was a party you know and it was it was crazy and it was probably the first time that I think I probably got chatting to Drew and Adam and Pat and you know and and, and all these other Manchester kind of lunatics I think a lot of non Gallagher's lot were there and it was like you know it was. It was it was a fun little party, and we got to Shrewsbury the next day, and we were dead, you know, like we were fucking white. And our tour manager driver was this old bloke who smoked a bit of spliff just to basically keep his Parkinson's at bay. But we basically we walked through Sheffield, 
uh, me and Andrew again. And by this point, you know, we were like, me and him were thick as thieves. And again, he had the guitar and I had a tambourine. And we were just, we just sat in this alleyway, just playing this song called Alleyways, which was like basically him going alleyways, did it, did it, did it. I mean, just rattling the tambourine. And we had this, like, it was like being a Pied Piper. There were like this group of kids who just followed us around town as we just sung this, you know, this silly song about alleyways. And I was like, okay, well, I really understand the cult of personality of Pete Doherty now and Baby Shambles. Like, this is, this is crazy. This is madness. We did this. We basically got backstage into the dressing room, and Pete and, and Pat are there, and they're playing Smith songs. And again, it's another pinch myself moment. You know, the Smiths, big, big influence, obviously, as a teenager, of you know, of those kind of two years of kind of getting into indie music, and 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 suddenly you know Pete, and it was like you know just wow, what a moment. And then we got on and did our gig, and we were knackered, like we were we were done, and we had the next day off. We weren't going to support them at Norwich, so we headed back. And on tour, I had been reading this. Um, I've been reading this book about being a highwayman, right, from the 1800s, you know, and they basically just just like ram horse and carts off the road and basically stick them up and, you know, rob them and then go off. So I don't know why I was reading this book, right, but whatever, taking my fancy. And all of a sudden we kind of, you know, we make a bit of a quick dash out of the venue and kind of we're trying to get back up onto the motorways, you know, to head you know, down the M1. And all of a sudden fucking police, like basically pull our, pull our, um, our, our spitter van open onto the curb, Right, it's like SAS fucking style police. I honestly like they're all in fucking black gear. Get out, get out, put your hands up, put your hands up. Like I remember one of them like whacking me around the face with a truncheon, but not like a fucking big whack, but I definitely connected. I was like, what the, what the hell is going on? Like literally hands up, literally handcuffed. We were then put into like police vans separately, all separated. It was a proper big bust. There must have been like twelve police vans. Like they were they they wanted to be the town that got Pete. They wanted to be the town that got Doherty and went right. We fucking got you, mate, right? Instead, they got us a bunch of idiots, right? <laughs> I remember the police officer saying, can we get your autographs after all this? <laughs> and they go, do you know, I'm nobody, what are you on about? Right, and um, and we basically, we got taken to Shrewsbury Police Station and the night before, obviously, we met Adam and Drew probably for the first time and chatted away. And, you know, I'm like 18-year-old Ronnie, just, you know, green, green as dollar. And, and we're all sat in, we're all sat in this, police like station they're like right we're gonna have to strip search you all now right and it's just it's like being in a fucking fever dream do you know what i mean it's like you just don't you just you just don't expect any of this to happen and you almost don't have enough time to actually register the fact that it is happening to you so you're <laughs> you're basically that everyone's been brought in and there's like this bit of bravado because we're all blokes right you know it's like hey, oh she had to use two hands to, you know what i mean like fucking uh, Johnny Headlock was there, right? Who was an interesting bloke to, to know and to be around um, for all the wrong reasons. Um, and um, I actually accidentally texted Johnny Headlock because I was trying to text another Johnny a few years ago, and he's now a spiritual leader. <laughs> um, and started texting me back a load of religious stuff saying, Whatever you're doing, stop it because God loves you. And I was like, Fuck me. But anyway, so. None of us had any drugs on us. None of us had anything that they could do us for. And um, we also had a lawyer with us as well, randomly, who was one of Pete's mates. I mean, maybe Pete just had a lawyer on with him at all times. I don't know. Uh, and yeah, that basically we were all released without charge. And they'd taken Pete to Norwich Station because obviously they'd eventually caught them all. And then I think he was clean. I think probably got tipped off, to be honest. I think um, that 
that party had a good connection within the police. I mean, you know, it's it's funny, isn't it? How um, when you, the deeper into the underworld you get, the the more corruption you seem to uncover in terms of that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, no one was arrested. And the irony is, the only person who had any drugs on them was our sixty-year-old tour driver who had a bit of <laughs> bit of puff on him, basically. Um, and they yeah, they didn't charge him either. I think they just kind of let him go with caution, and that was it. So yeah. Crazy fucking time. So how long was that tour, sorry? About two weeks. About two Uh, weeks. And um, obviously I'd go back and do it in a heartbeat. Uh, And, you know, it's almost like, you know, I've got almost a photographic memory of those moments. You know, like being in Leeds um, and being dropped off about three o'clock in the morning in a random car park and... Steph and Ashley Barker, um, these girls from Leeds, these sisters basically picking us up. And it was like, you know, it was like almost like indie kid trafficking where it was like, right, you take these, you take this lot now. And they took us to a house in Headley and this guy, Ali, Ali, Ali Tant lived there. Um, and uh, yeah, basically, you know, I remember waking up in the next morning and having four beans, four plates of beans on toast because it made so much. And I was like, yeah, I'll bring it on. It was, it was almost like I was a growing lad. <laughs> and, then, uh, and I remember Sam Riley was there and he, you know, who went on to obviously become a very famous actor. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was hanging out there one morning and he was just saying to me like, oh, I've got an audition today. And I was like, oh, right, cool. What's it for? And he was like, oh, it's, um, I'm going to play Ian Curtis in a film. Obviously, that was his big breakout role, wasn't it, that day that he went to the yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, just those little, you know, those little kind of moments, again, where, you know, I've never seen Sam Riley since, and I doubt he remembers that moment. But, you know, it was, again, it was like, wow, okay. That's, you know, just what strange, you know, what strange way that I was, you know, I spoke to him that morning that, you know, his life changed forever. And, you know, and it was funny times. I remember, like, I've met this girl in Liverpool, Liverpool Academy, and, um, I, you know, my answer was beautiful. And I remember saying, do you want to meet Pete? And by that point, I think we'd been, I think we'd been, I must have been just towards the end of the tour. I think maybe the third to last tour. So my confidence within the, within the kind of groups was, was like, it was obviously a bit higher. And I remember saying, oh, I can introduce you to Pete. And I remember introducing her to Pete and like, he just went, yoink, thank you very much. And she was with him for the rest of the tour. You know, and it was like, fucking hell. So, I mean, I learned that lesson. Yeah, you never, ever introduce a pretty girl to a band member who's uh, significantly um, more of an icon than you are. Um, And then we did, um, and then basically, and then we played Cardiff. Um, We played Cardiff. And that was was a really rough crowd, I remember. It was really, really violent. It was like, it was proper, yeah, you didn't expect the Welsh to be that rolled up. But I remember not being, it wasn't a nice environment being at that gig. And then we basically, it was the first night that I'd managed to blag a hotel as well and get a proper night's sleep. And I remember getting to the train station the next morning. We're on our way to London and we're doing Brixton Academy, also I thought. And we all sit on the train and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm having the time of my life, do you know what I mean? You know, and obviously it's the first one we've not had to sit and split a van. We're on the nice train to London and, you know, everyone's very excited. And Josh, the manager, he takes me down to carriage. He says, do you want to come and get a coffee? So I go with him and he takes me to one side and said, look, you've had your fun, but you're not playing this tonight. You're not doing this. This is a big gig for the band. You're not doing it. So I was like, okay, great. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Andrew, he's going, well, Josh, what the fuck are you talking about? He's in the fucking band. Ronnie, you're in the fucking band, okay? You're in fucking Littlelands. You know, and again, it was like, I was fucking, you know, caught in the middle of this, you know, and, and Josh saying, all, you know, this is stupid. This, you know, it's going to look stupid. You know, like this is, you know, it's a gimmick. Blah, blah, blah. 
And I, you know, and I was just like, look, guys, you know, I'm happy. I'm, I'm, I've, you know, I'm 18. And I'm, I'm, I'm at university, and I'm, I'm not really, you know, this, this is, this has been brilliant, you know, and it's broken all, you know. Uh, yeah, it's basically Andrew was just like, no, you know, you're in the band, and, and it works. And over time, the band, I mean, we went, we were a little bit like Spinal Tap. We went through a lot of bass players and a lot of drummers. <laughs> And eventually, by the time that we kind of settled with our final kind of lineup, they'd seen what I've done on stage and they could see the impact that I made in terms of the performance and, you know, the resonation I had with the crowd, hopefully. Um, and, you know, I used to bash that tambourine. I mean, I used to have bruises all over me, like literally. I mean, I'd lose a tambourine every gig because I was 18 and I was just pissed every night. But I would have, I'd wake up with huge, huge fucking bruises all over me, you know, and it's just literally, I'd just lose myself on stage. And I think I was that kind of bridge between audience and, and, and band in the sense that these kids, you know, like these kids just wanted to have a fucking great time and they saw me having a great time. And literally, like, there wasn't anything else to do in the world. And they did the same. And for me, that was, you know, that's something I would love. To, I mean, I would definitely not have the fitness levels to do that again. <laughs> but uh, I'd love to go back and, and do that, man, because that was, you know, that was that was crazy. That was, yeah, it's just a great time. Um, and that was, yeah, definitely. I mean, we played Brixton Academy, and I remember people stage, um, so crowd surfing towards the stage. And I remember spotting people I knew. And that was a big moment for me where I was just like, fucking hell, my mates are fucking in the crowd, crowd surfing, we're supporting Baby Shambles at Brixton Academy. But the most amazing thing for me at Brixton Academy was the catering. We didn't really get catering on Baby Shambles tours, as, as you can probably imagine. Um, you don't really get, I mean, as you're a support band, you get 50 quid and you probably get, you know, pot of hummus and fucking a couple of croutons. But we actually got proper catering at Brixton Academy, hot meals, and then they had unlimited Haribo and as many soft drinks as you wanted. <laughs> it's like just, I was just fucking intravenous in fucking Fanta and Tangfastics all day. <laughs> like a far cry from maybe what was happening down the room in the other dressing rooms. It's like I was just getting like loaded on fucking sweets and fizzy drinks. It's like that burst like the character of Pete Doherty on the, on the barbons. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, do you know what? I actually used to run a Bo Selector fan site. <laughs> and, I know, and I know Lee Francis, who is um, Bo Selector, Keith Lemon. Yeah, I remember. It took me. It took me a good couple of years to come clean. And I was like, I was at a festival with him, and I was like, Lee, do you remember? Do you remember BoAbbott.com? And he was like, Yeah. I was like, It was me. <laughs> he was like, I love that site. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> I was like, God, I'm such a loser. <laughs> That's the thing is that like, you know the internet for me has always been like such. It's been such a relaxing thing for me to to do and I've always loved making silly websites with no and um and yeah you know, obviously the forums you know for me that was a big thing you know I would I would be the ones on the forum posting about the gigs and telling people about what we're playing and you know and um you know and obviously the others forum and you know posting on there and you know it was most of my friends to begin with the reason I came to London is because of the 853 because I felt like I had a community that I was part of and and um and obviously then with Littlands, you know, being in a band, you know, they become your family. I think um Preston was saying that wasn't he, Sam was saying um it's it's you know, like you, you become very dysfunctional when you stop being in a band because you're just used to being around these people. You kind of miss all your formative years. I thought it was a really telling thing for him to, to share and to say really. Um it's been yeah, I mean that's for for me, 
that obviously that time was crazy and I don't think we're going to get another time in, in history like that again really where it just felt like anything could happen at Baby Shovel's gig anything could happen and it was so exciting and things started I mean with Baby Shovel's we supported them at Bristol Academy the year after as well and we, we did a lot of gigs at Ribbon Factory with them and there was one gig where Pete I think like was swearing at Drew on stage and kicking off and was like oh, a complete fucking mess we weren't allowed to go backstage until they'd finished to take our instruments home and take our bags and stuff. And I think that the gig went on for four hours and I think we were all like, we never want to see them play again. <laughs> and I think when it started to become a bit like the car crash slowing down and people slowing down to watch it and there were people at the gigs there hoping something bad was going to happen. You know, they weren't there for the music. I thought like that tour, the, the Down and Albion tour was the last time that the crowd were genuinely there. Everyone in that room was there because of the music. I feel like the the tabloid kind of side of it really took over and really tainted um, those shows for a good good time. It kind of it took Pete to have that massive fall from grace really until the, again he had to kind of refresh um, and restart his fan base again really. So just going back to there, where like where does where does that fit into everything? Like when you're on this tour, do the fans know the song at that point? So what was funny is we were at Brixton Academy soundcheck, and Pete hadn't watched any of our soundchecks, and he comes out for soundcheck, and he's talking to Andrew, and he's going, "Hey, what's that one we wrote? How's it go?" <laughs> so Andrew's having to teach him the chords on stage. <laughs> all right and there's these two girls called the Birmingham girls Natalie and Francesca and they said they were on holiday with him many years later and they were singing their way and he went that's a great song who's that by and they went by you <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how much affinity and kind of um you know, how dear Pete holds their way to his chest I think it went to number 41 or 42 or something in the in the charts so we missed out on the top 40 single I mean, when I say we I mean I wasn't anything to do with it mm. I mean in the indie chart it was number one but I think at that time anything that got released that week goes number one but we did it's get released it's same it's 22 week. on Wikipedia but I don't know if that's wrong that was probably I probably edited that drunk one night <laughs> uh, a bit like I edited did Hammond Wikipedia he does know about this and I said that he's got the largest collection of rental blockbuster videos in the UK <laughs> and it's still there and if I'm ever feeling down and low, I literally just click on that and just sit and read it. Uh, and I swear he gets, I mean, maybe not now, but I swear he, he has been asked about this in interviews as well for a day. <laughs> um, it's just, I feel like with this wiki, Wikipedia is like, if you put something in, that's just so, it's not def, like, it's not derogatory. Um, it, and it's, it's almost like it's unprovable. Did might actually have the world's biggest collection of X rental blockbuster videos, but at the same time, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. But uh, when Their Way came out, it was the same week as the Arctic Monkeys. And I think they sold 22,000 copies in the first day. Right. <laughs> and it, that was obviously the start of, like, the tornado of indie. And I liked what Mark Beaumont was saying, you know, like there's almost this kind of, like, snobbery about the, you know, calling it landfill in indie. And I thought it was really interesting, the fact that they had never really kind of given a good 
scene name, like the New Rock Revolution was was more Australian music and it wasn't, it was a bit of a shit name, wasn't it? And Land of India is so condescending. But yet anybody I speak to who was around that time or, or is nostalgic or reminiscent of that time, they all, it's, you know, it just, it feels like house in days, especially, you know, in, in the current climate of COVID and, you know, just lockdown that we're kind of stuck in. It's, you know, even more people yearning for those kind of days back. Um, and the Arctic Monkeys, obviously, you know, that week, we had no chance in terms of, of who we were up against. But definitely, um, that, was just, that was the start of, you know, indie becoming, you know, I mean, look at the Arctic, it's just a phenomenal success story, aren't they? But just with their way again, sorry, like, um, so you say him and Pete Dockett and Andrew co-wrote it. Like, who wrote the melody, do you know? Because I think that's one, Andrew. Of, that's one of Pete Dockett's best melodies, I think. It's really good. So recently, Pete has been in contact with Andrew to try and get to buy the rights of him for the song, which shows that Andrew wrote it because they want to use it in a French film. All right. um, and Pete had been going around telling everyone that he wrote it. <laughs> so when it actually came to the actual publishing through Rough Trades, obviously Andrew is the, is the songwriter on it. Um, mm. And it's obviously featuring Pete. I mean, Pete basically, I think Pete sung, just sung one of the choruses. Um, or one of the verses, or maybe they sung it together. Um, I haven't actually listened to it in a long time, as much as it's a song very dear to my heart. Thanks for listening to this episode of 22 Grand Pod. If Naughty's guitar music is your thing, then you might enjoy our Patreon page, where for £3 a month you will get access to the following series. The Naughty's Deep Dive, where we go through the likes of the Stalking Pete Doherty documentary in painful detail. My favourite 2000s album, where patrons and other guests come on to talk about their favourite album of the era. Legend or Landfill, in which we go through Enemy's top 10 albums of each year from 2001 and see if we think they are indeed legendary or for the landfill. Unsigned Stories, where we chat to bands that didn't quite make it in terms of signing that elusive record deal. We also have Fan Stories, where I talk to people about their memories and opinions on all things Naughty's Indie. You also get early access to any main podcast episodes and it's also worth checking out the YouTube page where you can see extended video versions of the interviews as well as plenty of other bits of commentary and opinion. All links are in the description. Now back to the pod. I remember Chris Morris, the comedian, came to one of our gigs and I basically I'd snogged this girl the night before and I didn't realise that she was friends with Chris Morris and so she'd come to the gig to see us play and brought him and like I was so starstruck that I didn't even notice that she was there with him next to him. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and I was literally chatting away and he was saying, I'm making this film about terrorists. And I probably told him some stupid story about terrorism myself. And and then and I said, I mean, Litland. He said, yeah, I know. He said, yeah, their way. You know, yeah, with the brown, you know, the brown, the brown paper bag cover. And I said, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, fucking hell, he's got our singles. You know what I mean, again, it was like, oh my God, kill me now. Perfect. Life over. Chris Morris. Do you know what I mean? Like my absolute comedy hero. Like, do you know what I mean? And it was again. It was that kind of craziness of, of. Uh, I mean, the next day I got a MySpace message from the girl, being like, "Thank you for fucking ignoring me after bringing Chris Morris to your gig." Because <laughs> like, I must have been talking about him the night before. Uh, and um, in terms of in terms of the song, from what I've been told, I mean, Andrew, we did speak about. We actually had lunch uh, just before lockdown, and he was telling me about how how Rough Trade were basically trying to get him to. Um, give rights to this, this film basically and yeah Andrew Andrew wrote it and Pete sung on it and um, I think that's a testament to Andrew's songwriter really is that he, he never he always said he never wanted to be a big pop star or success but 
I just always loved his music, you know, and that was that was that was the biggest catalyst for me really wanting to stay in Litland was just I loved the songs. And every time I danced on stage at Tambourine, you know, and just and just danced my little cotton socks off was because I loved the music, you know, and that was it really. Was it a one-off deal with Rough Trade for that single? Yeah, I mean, it was just it was it was it was the it was obviously Pete was signed to Rough Trade with Libertines, and um, maybe Baby Shambles with that down in Albion was that on? I think so, yeah. You know, Rough Trade. It was it was it was you know it was a star power Pete. Um, we what I mean, I, I've I've mentioned this manager Josh through the story, and I like you know Josh, if you're listening, man, I hope you're well. But we didn't really have. I mean, you know, I've got friends now, you know, in great bands and you look at the, you look at the machine around them and, you know, and maybe because modern day music is obviously a different world, because again, I feel like this is the last, this was like one of the last scenes before things got really money orientated and like, you know, you couldn't do, you can't do gorilla gigs and things like that now because it's, you know, too many moving parts, you know, you've got a exclusivity contract with one promoter, so you can't suddenly show up in your, in that town and play a random gig without breaking contract and blah, 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 and, you know, and, and all this stuff. But I do feel like we didn't really have any real management in place after the Baby Shambles tour and after their way. We didn't have any clue what was going on, really. And it was only really until we got in touch with Hedy Slimane or vice versa, he got in touch with us, that really we had any real direction in what we were doing as a band. So Josh got sacked or left or whatever, so Josh went. Um, and we... Well, were, for you, really, because... <laughs> Obviously, didn't like the look of you, did he? No. Well, the thing is, Josh was Josh was the reason that I was in that position to begin with. Josh was my friend from Brighton through this Redcoats band. Ah, uh, so you right, yeah. So he'd kind of become a bit of a turncoat, really, and um, decided that yeah. I mean, the jealousy in the band was because I was, you know, like I was saying from that first gig, people was you know chanting my name and not others in the band, you know. Um, and you know, Alex, the guitarist, and I—I I think at the beginning we weren't—we weren't, you know, the best of friends, but we became very, very good friends. And we were like, you know, we basically we we would bunk bendy buses like nobody's ever bunked bendy buses before. Do you know what I mean? Like literally, we would just spend the whole day waking up in Camberwell, bunking the bendy bus to wherever, getting kicked off by, you know, ticket inspectors, walking along, you know, across the bridge into Soho, hanging out in shops, going to the PPQ shop, and basically asking for a cup of tea, walking into Shoreditch, finding a gig to go to, and, you know, ended up... I mean, the best thing about that time in London was the indie scene. There were just nights on every day of the week. So, you obviously, you're from Hull, so obviously you had the yo-yo at the Welly. But, like, in London, you had... So, Monday was Trash, which was at the end, which is, like, where LCD Sound System and... Daft Punk and some fucking amazing bands like Liars played. Then Tuesday, you were either at Panic, which was um, at the Roxy, or which was £2, I think, for three, for, I don't know, £3 for two bottles of Heineken, or like £8 for like these jugs that as soon as you drank them, you just didn't remember anything for the next four hours. Um, it was like glass all over the floor. Um, or you went to White Heat, which was the kind of cooler version, but they had live music as well, so bands played before so you had a lot of kind of big bands kind of played their first big gigs at white heat and then wednesday was cheapskates which was 80p a drink i mean like fuck me those days were those days 
Then Thursday was smash and grab, which was just the best club night I've ever been to. You'd have people, you'd have Kate Moss in the toilet giving girls advice on makeup. You'd have Nick Grimshaw doing karaoke with Agnes T. You'd have Supergrass dressed as Diamond Hoo-Ha men playing live. You'd have Mark Ronson DJing. It was just like, you know, this incredible place. And I used to get booked to DJ there. And it was like, it was like anything goes. It was like the best wedding you'd ever been to. And you got to Friday, which was at Coco, which was Club Enemy. And if you were on the guest list and you got a wristband, then it was like, oh my God, you're in the VIP box. And then if you got a red wristband, you were allowed to go backstage. And it was like, it wasn't anything backstage. Like it wasn't any drink or anything, but it was just that status thing to the point when they actually created a club night before Coco called Daddy, I want a wristband. Right. Which was like, you know, run by the, the, the organizers of Club and Me, basically just to take the piss out of it. And then Saturday was Frog. Did you ever go down to Frog? Did you ever come down for that? Remember if the pads played? Um, I saw him a couple of times down there I might have done yeah and that was just again it was amazing and that was all the lads that lived above at Lambuca so you had like uh, Kevin yeah. and you had um, Beans on Toast you had like Dave from the Holloways you had Tom Frog who was just like you know people were wearing t-shirts saying I know, I know Tom Frog and it was like Again, it was, you know, Frog was amazing. You had Young and Lost from upstairs. You had, you know, bands like Vincent Vincent and the Villains and Les Inc. and all this people playing upstairs. And then downstairs, what was amazing is basically they had a guy from the enemy that was basically would put on the, uh, the gigs with them. And it would just be a feeder as a promotional part of the tour for bands. So if you released an album that week, you know how kind of bands used to do like HMV, you know, they do like all the kind of record stores that week. Then with the frog tour, basically with frog the Saturday night was almost like that was the big London promotional gig so you'd have like the Arctic Monkeys the first week they released and they performed Block Party you know all these amazing bands you know the Cribs I mean I remember seeing the Cribs and just being like I think I lost my shoes it was amazing you know and you know all that kind of stuff it was just fucking brilliant and then you go um, and then Sunday was Sensible Sundays at Lot Tavern and literally i mean i don't know how i did it on you know i didn't have a job you know i wasn't making any really money in the band you know every now and again someone might give me like 50 quid and i'd be like thank you so much for that 50 pounds you know like you know because you just you're just you're 18 19 just fucking happy just to be you know just living the dream um you know and i suppose you kind of you learn to blag you know you learn it's how i started djing was that i learned that if i dj i got paid and i got free drinks yeah. and I didn't have to queue for anything. And so obviously the DJ and stuff and the DJ in story for me started when I was still at university halls, but I obviously was just about to kind of sack it all off and, and, and kind of quit university full time. And I got a text from someone and it was like, hi, it's Maraid from Queens of Noise. Um, I hear you're a DJ. Do you want to play the Queens of Noise night this Friday? And I was like, this is a shut up. This is a joke. Again, like, you know, like, oh, shut up. This is a joke. Whatever. You know, so you kind of text back. Yes, yes, please. And I remember even like the moment of getting to 333, I still thought it was a prank. I thought someone was having me on. And I got there and Marage was like, hi. And I had never DJed. I had ne- I didn't know what I was doing. All I knew is that I, I liked music and I had a good music taste, in my opinion. And there was a DJ called Goldie Rocks, who sounds a, still a good friend. And Goldie Rocks was like, okay, look, I'll take you under my wing. I'll show you what to do. And I mean, DJ and CD, indie music is, you know what I mean? My fucking dog could do it. You know, because <laughs> you know, it is literally, I mean, the, the trick is just to make sure you play one song after the other. <laughs> That's it. And, you know, like, you know, and there's no more techni- technicality to it. You can't really DJ 
guitar music, right? You just can't, you know, it's like, I'm sure there is people who argue otherwise, but generally, you know, you just got to make sure that one song blends into the next one, like kind of seconds you know, towards the end. So, so that was the start of DJing and that became a kind of side um, career uh, for a few years. But it, what, I mean, what was great obviously is that we would, we would play gigs and then I would be booked to DJ the after parties and things like that. And Adam used to do that with Baby Shambles. And it's a, Gary still does it with the Libertines. And it's a good, you know, it's, it's not just a good way to make a bit extra cash, but, you know, it's a nice way as well just to kind of bookmark your, you know, your relevance in, in, in the party, you know, in terms of why you're there. And, and obviously being so well known for being that person that danced on stage, you know, like the Indie Bears was obviously, you know, to be able to then DJ and to, and to kind of help create, you know, a dance floor was obviously almost kind of went hand in hand. How long were you in the band? I mean, I saw they released an album in 2008, is that right? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, so basically we went and so, so just to give, if anyone hasn't, it's not, I presume most people probably turned off by now, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, what happened was we ended up kind of becoming a fashion band. So we ended up basically, we played the hundred club and our drummer quit mid tour. <laughs> it was like spinal tap. He like blew up mid set. <laughs> and, um, Adam Fajet from baby shambles, obviously used to be in a band with Andrew and, and he came on tour of us. And Adam, I mean, I texted Adam this morning, actually. He's a, we're still really close mates. And, um, we, uh, yeah, basically he came on tour and, and we played the hundred club and, you know, that was obviously, you know, a prestigious venue for us to play, you know, you know, the home of punk. And um, I remember there was just one bloke that just was photographing me for the whole gig. And I was wearing, I mean, I've got some pictures actually that, um, of, of, the, of this outfit. And I'm basically, I'm wearing girls' jeans that are like size eight. I've got a safety pin that's attached to like a girl's top that like is basically allowing me no modesty. I've got huge, huge curly long hair. I'm wearing basically like a million girls' beads around my neck. It's like you couldn't be any more androgynous if you tried. And I remember dancing with my socks off. I remember, I remember being, we had this one song, I can't, oh, Don't Call It Love, it was called. And it had a false start, basically, where you kind of, the drums didn't come in until a bit later. And I remember being like, oh, by this point, I was like, I really want to bring Adam in. I'm going to bring Adam in. And I brought Adam in at the wrong time. <laughs> I brought him in too early. <laughs> right? Anyway, but it was a great gig. And I just remember this guy snapping me in. And Anne McCloy, who basically, she designed all the merch for Selfish Cunt and Baby Shambles and Little. And she was there. And she said, oh, Eddie, Eddie Slamane liked you. And I went, who's that? And she went, Eddie Slamane? You don't know who Eddie Slamane is? And I went, no, who the fuck is that, right? And I, as, obviously, I did think it was weird that he was only photographing me and nobody else in the band. But I just thought, oh, you know, by that point, you've almost got a little bit of ego and you're just going, oh, right, okay, okay, that makes sense. Um, and I remember I smashed the beads against the speaker stack at the end of the gig and all this, all the beads exploded everywhere across the crowd. And I remember this one girl came up to me and she was like pulling them out of a bra, going, fucking hell, no, you know, it was like, you know, you felt like a rock star for, for that short moment. And um, a few days later, we get, we get an email to the band account and it's... Um, it's from uh, Hedy's assistant, Christopher. And it's, uh, hi, Hedy would like to meet Ronnie for lunch. Um, and Christopher, I, I, mean, I remember Andrew turning around and saying, do you know who this is? And we go, no. And he showed me this Birth of a Rock and Roll book that he did, where he basically photographed like Pete and the Kazals and all these kind of bands of that era, Paddington's, I think, you know, because 
obviously obviously all the Giorgino Testino, Testino stuff that obviously Paddington's did you know it was obviously a synergy with, with rock and roll and, and fashion already and then um, yeah basically we um, I went to meet I was dating this girl and she was a massive Hedy Slimane fan so I was like well come with me to the lunch right so we went for this lunch and she just kind of sat there like oh my god it's Hedy Slimane right and he was just this really unassuming um, wide-eyed kind of French guy very shy Spoke very slowly, very, very French. Um, and maybe one of the reasons that we connected is because I didn't have that kind of nervous energy of like, wow, this is, this is a fashion legend that I'm sat with. You know, this is just, you know, a weird French bloke who likes to make clothes. Um, and he's, he said, I want to make a film about you. I, I want to basically, he said that there was this um, street performer in the 1900s that he had been researching and, and known about. And he basically used to just perform this entire set on one wooden block and he obviously seen my dancing and, and what have you and and so he basically got me to transpose my entire set still on a wooden block and all you can hear is the tambourine rattling and my winkle picker heels hitting the wooden block and you can't hear the music of the knit and that's all kind of hidden in headphones and that was debuted at the Grand Palais in Paris and that was um that was again a surreal thing because we got to the hotel and I stupidly wrote little on the wall in permanent marker. I don't know why I did it because it's not the type of thing that I was ever a rebel without a cause. And um, I remember like Hedy's people saying, we're not going to tell him, but please don't fucking do that again. And then the next thing I know, um, Hedy's having lunch with me and Andrew and, um, and, and, and he's like, well, look, can you do the, the soundtrack for our next fashion show? And the rakes had just done the, the obviously, you love the rakes, mate, don't you? <laughs> uh, and, um, and yeah, they, they, they basically had, um, yeah, the rakes had just done it. I think Pete had done it. You know, like all these, like, you know, um, these new periods did it a year after us, um, and, which was a great, you know, great. I mean, they were like 10 minute long, you know, opuses. They were wicked. And we did a song called Don't We Look Good Together. Um, and, and there was a little bit of tambourine on it, very little bit of tambourine on it. We, uh, but yeah, basically, we spent the summer recording it and hanging out with Hedy, um, you know, generally on Hampstead Heath. You know, I remember once the ice cream man came and Hedy was like, what is a 99? And we had to, like, explain to, like, you know, the, the king of fucking men's fashion what a 99 ice cream was. You know, and, um, and the next thing I know is he's like, I want you to be in the show. And I'm like, what? Again, it's like another what moment. And, um, and yeah, basically, we, um, <laughs> I go over to Paris and I meet up with a load of French builders and they have a harness and a motorized like arm basically that's like 12 foot or maybe even higher up from the floor and I've got these diamond encrusted angel wings that they put on me and they load me into the harness and they load me up onto this motorized arm and they're flying me back and forth from the catwalk back and forth and they can't speak any English and I can't speak any French and I feel like I'm Michael Craw and fucking Michael Spencer if some others do have them and I'm just like what the again <laughs> what the fuck am I doing here I just remember like being left to dangle as they would just be kind of like fixing things on the on the motor and blah 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 and just thinking this is mental mate right and then Hedy would arrive and he'd kind of go mm -hmm. and by the time you kind of 
you just feel like just get me out of here right and eventually he said no no it does not work it does not work right because uh, he's now african right and he's like it does not work and then and then he says no but now you will now you, I'm, I'm just gonna do a normal accent now you will walk and i'm like okay i'm gonna walk what and he's like yeah you're gonna be in the show and i'm like what and he's like but you, you're not a model you were my tambourine angel <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, you're a tambourine angel. And he's like, yeah, I want you to wear these diamond encrusted wings and I want you to come out for the finale of my last ever Dior show. And I want you to wear a tambourine, tam- yeah, wear these wings and play the tambourine and lead all the models out for the finale, right? Which is just fucking mind blowing. I mean, supposedly Carl Lagerfeld cried because I was so beautiful, right? It's what someone told me. But we had, we had Mick Jagger in the front row sat next to Andrew. And the only person I saw when I did this show was Andrew just kind of like going, come on, right? And he was sat next to Mick, right? And then you've got Elton John. I remember, I remember being backstage right after the show and obviously quickly taking off a fucking diamond wings, right? And they, those wings went straight. Like, they, I wasn't allowed to ha- have them on my persons for any longer than the show. Like, they must have been real diamonds because <laughs> I was eyeing up. I wanted to try and sneak it back in my suitcase, right? Yeah. And, um, and then basically, it was just big bloke in front of me and I was trying to get in back into, you know, into the change room and it was Elton John. <laughs> it was like me tapping Elton John on the shoulder going, sorry, mate, can I just get past there? Right. And then we basically, we went, uh, we went and played this gig for Hedy's birthday that night. Uh, and Mick Jagger was there and I was DJing. So I was up in the decks and supposedly Andrew chatted to Jagger and said like, do you think, you know, you want to play, play a song with us tonight? And he's like, yeah, yeah. We'll do nervous and not even nervous breakdown. And then I remember being on stage and Andrew would be like, yeah, Mick Jagger's here, isn't he? Is he going to get up on stage? And he'd obviously left by that point. <laughs> right. But anyway, so the reason that obviously your, your story was about how long was it in Littlands for, um, and obviously I needed to give all that backstory to kind of explain that we then, because of the fashion industry adopted us, that kind of, that kind of I think, ruined any of our chances of the music, music industry because you kind of, if you kind of go that, that route, the music industry doesn't really kind of have any time for you. They kind of feel like you've sold out a bit and you kind of lose all your integrity kind of as, as musicians because, you know, it looks like you're kind of sucking corporate cock. And um, so it's, it's more that we were making, we were making really quick, easy money, you know, you know, doing, you know, doing fashion show, you know, the money's amazing for fashion stuff. And then obviously, because I was then a Dior model in inverted commas, obviously I was getting more modeling stuff and I, you know, modeled for like K-Swiss and Dr. Martins and, you know, and Levi's and all this kind of random stuff. And, you know, so that was, that was obviously, that was turning my head one direction. Obviously the DJ and obviously was, I was, I started DJing at festivals, so, you know, DJing at Reading Festival and V Festival and, and, you know, places like that. So that was all, you know, that was all kind of building my, you know, in my head, that was building my profile. Um, and then we moved to New York. Basically, we did this one show for Gap, the National Portrait Gallery. And that was, um, again, Brian Ferry was there and Goldfrapp was there. And it was, you know, it was a great show. And we basically gave us enough money for us all to move to New York. And we'd managed to get a couple of the gigs with this, this DJ uh, trio called The Misshapes, who were like the coolest fucking... Um, like just the coolest kids in town, right? Basically, like Madonna asked if she could DJ for them once, you know. And they basically, they were like the ultimate New York hipsters. Um, and I, we went to stay with them. And uh, I, I was staying with them, and and Andrew stayed somewhere else, and the rest of the band we were basically all in basically sofa surfing. But we had a gig with the Horrors at Miss Shapes, and then we were going to play, I think, Slash's Club. It was all like kind of anyway. I only got, I only got to do one gig, and we basically. We, 
we we played the gig at Misshapes and that was amazing. It was one of my most favourite gigs and the horrors were the horrors were so good then because that was the first album counting was it like what was the first album called now? Hannah Counting Fives was a single, yeah. Yeah, so it was like, you know, she was a parasite. And basically Farris would basically just have all this black um paint and he'd just put them all over his hands and he'd just go into the crowd and just like handprint people's faces and like you'd leave a horror gig and people would just be covered in black paint and the strobes were so violent and vicious and just like the whole thing was just like a wall of sound it was amazing right and they just they were you know phenomenal performance and then we saw them play again and this was at halloween and there was a big pinata and i remember barris like using the mic to smash it and some american guy said something to him and he jumped off the stage and they got a fist fight and it was a fucking massive brawl broke out and then we DJed afterwards. But I'd been late for that gig because I'd woken up basically the night before with these cold, cold sweats, right? Like, I basically was like having to tell someone to close the window, open the window, close the window, close, you know what I mean? Like really, really feverish. And finally got to, got to this venue. It was like for Steve Aoki, I think it was, that we were DJing. And then we basically, we, we left and... For the next week, I was just basically sofa bound in the misshapes flat, like sofa bound, and I couldn't, like, basically couldn't couldn't move. Like, I couldn't even taste anything. I remember they bought me a pizza, and like, I'm a fucking junk food fiend, and they literally they were like, couldn't, I couldn't I couldn't taste it. It was absolutely it was horrendous. And my bandmate Ben, he was like, right, I think I'm gonna have to take you to hospital run tomorrow because I'm not I'm not sure you're well, and um, I. You know, especially, you know, being like 19 and, you know, being like a ball of energy to suddenly being reduced and not even be able to taste food. But I thought, well, I'm in New York, you know, like, this is, you know, this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity to be living in New York and, you know, and you know, Englishman in New York. Let's, let's, there, was a, there was a party somewhere. So I basically dragged myself out of bed and I remember going to like the 7-Eleven and getting a bottle of Coke and a donut and I couldn't taste either. I remember losing, maybe it was COVID. <laughs> maybe I had the first, <laughs> the first ever loss of taste during, and, um, I I remember getting to the party and just knew I'd made the wrong decision. I knew I'd made the wrong decision. And I said, right, I, I've got to go. So I walked back to the apartment and the horrors were actually over with the misshapes. Or well, the misshapes weren't there, but they were in the flat and they didn't know how to let me in or just didn't want to let me in. <laughs> Either way, I couldn't get into the flat. And I actually think this saved my life because I then went back to someone else's flat called Gail's flat and a couple of my bandmates were over there too and I fell asleep and I woke up at 4pm the next day and I woke up and they were like oh Ronnie you're awake and then all of a sudden I had a seizure and I suppose you fall New York fireman had to hold me down and I was and I was sedated and I was rushed into hospital rushed into St Vincent's Hospital in, in Chelsea and I was yeah basically um, I went into a coma <laughs> Right. Uh, and yeah, and I had meningitis, and I was in I was in a coma for a month, and um, I yeah, it was it was I mean, I basically kind of told my mom and my sister and my girlfriend at the time that you know they were coming to kind of let me in a box kind of thing, and um, yes. yeah, I was obviously very lucky to get through that, and they kind of obviously from that, obviously I got flown home, and it was like you know six months of kind of back back at my mum's basically been you know nursing myself back to health and during that time you know Littlers went on to record an album and um obviously I didn't have anything to do with it and played a few more gigs after that but that was kind of the end of the kind of Littlers dream really um you know it was um obviously by that point you know I, I'd kind of started to kind of fancy doing things on my own you know I'd started fancying being myself a bit of a singer I, I referenced Selfish Gun at the beginning it's like I kind of wanted to try that person next 
and try to see if I could be him. And you just think anyone could ever be Martin Tomlinson. I just think he's like just the most abrasive, wonderfully abrasive, selfish kind there is basically. And um, and yeah, so I started a band called No Picasso, and obviously the DJ. And even like to this day, I'm still lucky enough to get bits to DJ at things. And um, yeah, it was mad. I remember one of the weirdest things in New York actually was on the first night we were having dinner with the misshapes. And they were so American. And they were like, we have these tickets and they're, it's a bit boring. We don't really want to go. And we're like, all oh, right, what, who's playing? They were like, uh, the Strokes and Kanye West. And we were like, what? Yeah, you know, we, we don't want to, do you want them? And we're like, oh my, yes. Oh my God. And I remember we went, it was this um, Hennessy party. It was all free Hennessy, which is actually not a great thing to be drinking all night. Um, and yeah, we saw the fucking Strokes and Kanye in our first night in New York. And it was like, this is it. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it's like, you know, as much as, you know, there was obviously that, that horror of meningitis, you know, every, everything that kind of the stories that I look back on, you know, it's just, I'm just very lucky and very privileged that I got to have that chance um, and, and to kind of fall into this opportunity that really I um, hadn't earned and had no fucking right to be there. So what was that like, kind of an invite on the gig or something? Yeah, it was, at radio, it was at Radio City, so like music hall. So it must have been like some big launch because I remember Ewan McGregor was there. In fact, another funny story from that was I remember we were on the red carpet because obviously we were there with the misshapes. They had this PR guy and he was actually, he was in Brune, no, he was in Thorat and he was punked by Sasha Baron Cohen in the film. So I remember watching it a few years later and going, oh my God, that's the PR guy. All right, so he was obviously like big enough for like, you know, Sasha to be, you know, making the making a fool of him and i remember him like we went on we went on the red carpet and it was like all the flashing lights it was like the hottest new band in town the lillilands you know and the photographer said who right but obviously you know, it's like perhaps just and they just fucking photograph everyone and all of a sudden i could just hear <laughs> this pr girl whisper to someone else and go can we get these nobodies off here kirsten dunst is here <laughs> <laughs> and with like you and McGregor like in front of us, us in the middle like fucking rabbits, you know rabbits in the headlights, and then you know Kirsten Dunn's waiting for us nobodies to walk off, right? But um, yeah, I mean that's the thing. I feel like when you go to places like New York, you've got one chance to fake it or make it, haven't you? Really? That no, sounds like you had a good one. We did most of it anyway. I mean, I was very really lucky. I mean, the first ever Enemy Awards I ever went to, I didn't have a ticket. Um, but I remember basically, I remember hearing about it and I remember knew, knowing that lots of people that I'd obviously met had got, were going. And I just, and I mean, it must be the, it's the blagger in me, but I just thought, right, how am I going to get in here? How am I going to get into the Enemy Awards? And obviously Andrew had lived with Jarvis um, for about 10 years in the 90s. Uh, so... I'm kind of working out. I mean, about, I, think, I think I'd gone up to the guest list at the beginning and just said, hi, I'm Ronnie from Littlelands. And then like double checking the list and going, oh, we're really sorry you're not on the list. You know, I mean, trying to do like the kind of, you know, the confident kind of black and that didn't work. So I was like, fuck, right. But I wasn't going to give up. I remember my girlfriend was in there and I think that was the thing. Like I was like being really entitled and I was like, well, she can't be going and I, and I can't. I'm the rock star here, right? And, uh, and I remember... Jarvis arrived and I got Jarvis to blag me in and say that he that I was with him <laughs> and he blagged me into the enemy awards yeah. right, and we're getting in there and be like and again it's like you know all these bands that I you know something new and and the view and the view supported Littlands in Glasgow I remember Alan McGee was there um and Alan McGee was there and it was like and it was uh they supported us and they obviously you know went on to become very successful and and, and we as very much as it's lovely to be invited on this, you know, in terms of the um, the other people, you know, the other bands, you know, we, we're very much, you know, bottom with a litter of the run in terms of our success. Uh, but 
obviously the view and Kyle and, and I, I mean, hopefully um, he, he's called me now. We got into a fight. We got into a fucking fist fight at the NME Awards. Well, I'm pretty sure it was like me versus the whole band. It was like a load of fucking scallies from fucking Dundee and me. And it was a huge fucking rock. And it was like, I don't know how it happened. I don't know what I said or what I did. But it was like fucking glasses in the air. It was like, you know, <laughs> proper, proper. Got, I got a good old ass kicking off the view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the thing is like that being, I mean, I'm very lucky that I didn't really kind of, I was always kind of on good terms with bands. Like obviously I hung out at the Hawley Arms. So like, you know, you had, you know, the Amy Winehouse, you know, like I hung out with Amy a lot and I was very, very lucky in that sense. And our bass player Ryan's uncle was Johnny Family. He was obviously the drug dealer that went to prison for selling the video of her, um, you know. And uh, so there was obviously that connection and his best mate was Blake and, you know, all pretty scumbag stories, but, you know, obviously at the time you don't really consider that. And obviously, you know, Nambuka, you know, with obviously all the lads there, you know, and yeah, I mean, it's, it was, you know, London was such a great stomping ground in those days, really, I think for everyone. I remember going to a party at like, I mean, this is, I think this is the epitome of the London indie scene for how I saw it. I was chatting to Donny from the Towers of London um, I bumped into him in Portsmouth last year and I was saying, how mad is it, man, that we met at a party at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday? We hadn't been to bed and we arrived at a new house party that was still going for the night before because our last one had died off and you were there and I was there at two o'clock in the afternoon and that's the first time we met. <laughs> and I remember being up in Hull the first time that we played Hull and I remember meeting, I think it was the first time I ever met the Paddingtons and uh, I remember, again, it was like, you just lived, you didn't live for tomorrow, you just lived for the moment, for the now. And uh, I think maybe that's, maybe that's what kids these days are doing, but just in a different way, you know. Maybe it's just we only see it through our kind of, you know, we can only see as far as part of, part of as far as a past, of, oh God, am I having a stroke? can only see past the end of my nose in terms of what young people are doing now, but it does feel like that generation and the excitement and the enthusiasm and the passion was unrivaled. Yeah, I remember you playing that gig in Hull, I think, because there's plenty of rumours that Pete was going to turn up. Because that was that like a headline tour you were yeah, doing? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the Pete thing really did follow us around like a bad smell towards the end. Because obviously, kind of Pete's fall from grace and the negativity about him and obviously the bad press. And, you know, and the press were, you know, really out to vilify him. And maybe he deserved it. Who knows? Um, and, he, you know, that kind of, that, that well, our association so instantly, especially in Europe, we were very lucky to play some great shows in Europe, but it was everyone was there because of Pete. And then obviously the Dior thing completely changed our, our, our fan base to suddenly being very fashionista, which was very kind of vacuous and very, you know, kind of, you know, like we were flavor of the month, you know, and once there was a new, you know, basically once these Puritans released that song, you know, I wasn't hanging out with Eddie, they were, you know, and it's like, you know, kind of, you know, a little bit like kind of, it's like being back at school, do you know what I mean? It's like you're not in the call group anymore. And and you would play gigs in Europe and kids would just go, how is Pete? You know, and I actually remember Adam Feichet used to fucking give my number out when kids used to ask him for Pete's number. <laughs> so I used to get fucking phone calls all the fucking time, right? So one day I thought, right, I'm going to get Adam back because I thought, right, this is this can't be going on because it was fucking doing my head in. So I, um, I set up a gum tree advert. <laughs> for this flat in Camden and it was like all mod cons like swimming pool indoor swimming pool indoor gym sky sky tv electricity and gas all included 500 pounds a month 
private for like during like literally the most the most amazing offer for Camden and I set one up for I think as well for Scotland because I wanted some really gruff I think I maybe I set up like a, a personals advert in Scotland for like a buxom blonde that like basically that was like in Dundee or was like Dumfries or somewhere and he just got this barrage of fucking phone calls <laughs> people he was asking to rent his flat or to fucking go on a date with him <laughs> and uh yeah that was um yeah i think he had to change his number after that but it serves you right if i check just got a note i don't know if it's about the nme awards but one of your notes saying um kate moss tells you to fuck off was that the nme awards yeah so that was so after I'd come back from New York and obviously after, so I, went, I mean, I've, I've been to many, many enemy awards, you know, like I've got, um, I actually, I think I'm a good omen because every single time I've been to enemy awards, like, as in like properly without blacking it with Jarvis, I've actually, whatever table I've been on, that band has always won an enemy award. <laughs> so even I'm hanging out with the, or maybe I'm the good luck charm, who knows, but I remember getting back from New York and obviously once kind of obviously getting a bit better and going to my first enemy awards after the meningitis scare and Pete was there and I remember he kind of came up and said oh hey you, you had meningitis are you okay blah, blah, blah. and he's been you know he could be very charming and then the next thing I know Kate Moss comes over and she's rat assed right and she literally goes oi stop talking to my boyfriend and I'm like hey I'm sorry and I, and I was like I was like you know I'm from Croydon as well and she went I don't care and because uh, I see like she, that's where she grew up and then uh, and then Pete's like no, no this is Ronnie and she's going just fuck off <laughs> Right. And that was the second time that she told me to fuck off because the first time was me DJing at this party for this hairdresser, James Brown. And she was on the dance floor with um, Jason Donovan, right? It was a bit of a grease and twosome that night, to be honest. And she was on the, on the dance floor with him. And I played UB40's Red Red Wine because that's the kind of cool DJ I am. And she was left dancing her own, and I thought, and I could, I thought she was clocking me, right? I thought that she'd given me the eye, so I kind of like saunter out past the decks, and I'm like red, red, and I take her hands, and she just looks up at me and goes, "Fuck off," <laughs> and that's it. And again, just back and back, get back into your box, and I slunk back on behind the decks, <laughs> crestfallen, yeah. Uh, you know, hey man, she, I've never seen uh, I've never seen someone that can, you know, like how you see bees swarm in cartoons. Mm. That's what she's like. Like when you see her in in a room, it's like only her and Paris Hilton are the two people that I've ever seen. Where literally, no matter who you are, no matter how famous or important you are, you are watching every stride she makes. You know, she is just incredible. Her her star power. Just got a note. This is a funny story. You got a funny story about Tarantino? Yeah, so this is probably like my best. I've got two great stories, but I'm only going to share one tonight. Um, and this is like the epitome, basically, of my time in London and my time of the indie scene. And there is, I really hope that if, if there's listeners, don't think this is just like an excuse to name drop, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of famous people involved in this story. And it's, it's basically, it's, I'd broken up with this girl and I was, I was, you know, really, really heartbroken walking through Camden and Dougie, who owned the Hawley Arms. I mean, this has got all the kind of London indie scene, like, checkpoints. You know what I mean, it's like, if you're playing, like, London indie scene bingo, you'd literally have full house listening to the story. So you've got, basically, you've got Dougie from the Hawley Arms, check, 
right? And he bumps into me, and I think I'm holding like a Chinese takeaway, crying into my rice, right? And he's like, you're right? And I'm like, no, I've broken up with what's face, right? And so we go to see Lord Large, right, who turned out to be the keyboard player in Squeeze and um, in turned out to be in Pete Doxy's band as well for a bit. And he plays his gig at um, the Jazz Cafe, and it's brilliant. It takes my mind off things. And then afterwards, we got to the Hawley, and then Dougie used to live above it, and it was a bit of a party flat. And we were, we were basically up there already. It was Johnny Burrell, Woody Burrell, his brother, Noel Fielding, and um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Kimberly Stewart, um, Rod Stewart's daughter, right? So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a showbiz affair, and... Um, and we basically, I remember I swapped clothes with Kimberly Stewart, right? <laughs> and then again, random, random fucking, you know, crazy times. Anyway, and then we decided we were going to go to the Groucho Club, which is this members club in London. And we jump in the cab and there's two different cabs, right? So I think Johnny and Noel and Willie went in one and then, you know, me and Kimberly and Dougie in the other one. And then so we, they go a bit further, a bit faster than us. So by the time we get to the Groucho, Noel Fielding is sat with Quentin Tarantino, and it turns out he's a massive Mighty Boosh fan, like huge Mighty Boosh fan, right? And I, you know, I'm I'm like nursing wounds, so I'm fucking, I'm like a bit rabid and foaming at the mouth kind of vibe. I mean, I'm I'm not a pretty picture, and everyone's you know enthralled by Tarantino. And do you remember Theme Hospital? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember Mr. Bloatyhead? <laughs> that's like Tarantino's got like American like like shut up football head kind of fucking Hey Arnold size head it's massive right <laughs> and he's talking and he's and like I've tried to interject and say like what's this new film about and he went just watch it and he was like you know kind of like shut up you know moving on right and I when I was basically when I was a kid I wrote a script I must have been about 10 years old and I wrote a script for Rocky Six it was six pages long, written on A6 paper, all the sixes, six, 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 right? And I remember having this dream that if I ever bumped into Sylvester Stallone, I would give him this script and we would make it and it would be the best film of all time, right? So I thought that was a really funny story to tell Tarantino, right? And again, just did not give a fuck. Do you know what I mean? Like literally just shut me down. I'm going to shut your ass down, right? So I'm feeling a bit fucking, I'm feeling a bit rubbed up here. Do you know what I mean, right? And, you know, you kind of, you've got that kind of Del Boy, like, you know, fucking, you know, he, he, he dares wins, Rodders, right? And being a bit of a cunt, to be honest, right? And I've said my one C word for the podcast, right? <laughs> right? And uh, anyway, so we get to the end of the night, right? And we're all kind of queuing up to kind of say goodbye to Tarantino. And obviously at the beginning, I told you that my dream was to be a scriptwriter, right? Yeah. And we're all, basically, we're all queuing up and... It gets to me, right? And I turn around and say, hey, Quentin, do you think you might read one of my scripts if I emailed you it to you? And he went, no. And I literally <laughs> just went, well, do you want to read one of these? And then he just grabbed him in his midriff and went, Ick! right? He then swung at me. I ducked. He fucking missed. Willie Burrell pulls me back off him, basically. <laughs> And everyone's like, Ronnie, you've got to fucking go, mate. <laughs> Basically, Tarantino tried to punch me in the fucking face. <laughs> so what happened? You grabbed him in his chest? I basically did like a little, like a honk, Basically, like Jim Carrey, like honk, right, on him, like in his midriff, basically. Like, basically grabbed his, like, grabbed his belly. <laughs> and just went, honk, Right? And then like, do you want to read what you're almost like a fucking Warner Brothers cartoon? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like what am I doing but you know but obviously I never saw him again or met him again and it's obviously it's, it's, a, it's a funny story for me to share but it's yeah it's just the epitome of that London indie scene you know it's like you would not I mean no field in you know I remember um, 
I met Noel Popley through Johnny Rhythm, and Johnny Rhythm was really um, in, in influential in getting the Libertines back together for the first time. And when he died, um, very, very sad, very, very rapid cancer killed him. Um, and Johnny used to put on the gigs at the Rhythm Factory um, and basically helped form that early Libertine scene um, and was really good friends with, with uh, Noel and his brother, um, and yeah, basically they got back together for the first time and played live. It was actually on my birthday. Um, they played at the Ribbon Factory as a tribute to Johnny. And that was the first time that Pete and Carl and, and uh, Gary and uh, I think Drew played instead of John um, that night. And obviously now, you know, they're back, back at rock and rolling, aren't they? And uh, fingers crossed for the indie revival so we can all... Uh, <laughs> we can all go and live these days again, but maybe just a bit from a bit of a safer distance. I mean, that's the thing that really, in terms of like humble pie, you know, we were a speck in the in the indie scene. But I just think maybe like I was just very lucky to be a bit of a bit of a face in, the, in those days. Yeah, it's really cool, like you, the way you went from, you know, like fan to being <laughs> supporting Baby Sean was in a space of like well overnight, basically. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's the thing. My girlfriend always said, like, almost the, the kind of the blunder years were kind of the years after that, kind of after No Picasso, kind of just running nightclubs and doing basically promoting and DJing, and just basically just before I kind of started hanging out with Calvin Harris, and that's like a completely different chapter, really. The kind of these blunder years, she said, everything kind of happened so young without having to really work very hard for it. That I kind of, um, kind of, I kind of just didn't really know what to do with myself. Because I think, as Preston said, like you have these formative years that you miss. So where everyone's kind of learning and kind of finding self-discovery from being at uni and doing all that kind of, you know, kind of you're just basically just thrown into absolute chaos. And then you kind of you've got like 10 years basically to try and <laughs> work out after those 10 years just kind of who you are and where you are. And I feel like even now at 33, I'm just about working it out. Until the time I get to see you again.